Springer Mountain in northwest Georgia, northwest corner of Georgia, and extends 2,200 miles, crossing 14 different states before coming to an end at Mount Katahdin in northern Maine. So it basically goes the entirety of the east coast and the eastern seaboard. Soon after you cross from New Hampshire into southern Maine, you encounter what is commonly referred to as the hardest and most challenging mile of the entire 2,000-mile trek, that being what is referred to as Mahusik Notch. Has anyone actually traveled some of the Appalachian Trail at all? Anyone hiked the Appalachian Trail? We got some adventurers in here. Yes. My family actually has a family friend um, who recently retired, and it was his goal over the course of a year to do the entirety of the Appalachian Trail. And he did the the 2,200-mile trek over the course of about a year. Uh, He took a pause in the middle and returned to finish and completed it. And in talking with him, he made reference to the Mahusik Notch. And if you look up the hardest points on the Appalachian Trail, this one consistently comes up as the most challenging part of the entire 2,200-mile, 14-state trek. The Mahusik Notch is a deep gap, and I have some pictures for you on the screen to be able to kind of get an idea. It's a deep gap piled with overlaying rocks and boulders. And you have to crawl, you have to kind of maneuver your way around, you might even have to remove your backpack to be able to move through this very challenging, tight, sometimes only three feet wide gap in order to complete the Appalachian Trail. I have another picture that will give a nice depiction of how tight this part is. He's got his backpack on the front of him, if you can't tell. He's literally like in a spot that might be two and a half feet wide, three feet wide or so. And this is the most challenging one mile out of the entire 2200 of the Appalachian Trail. But to stay on the trail, one must go through. There is no other option if you want to stay on the trail. A recent meme of the Mahusik Notch that I saw online says, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. I don't know about you, but the Mahusik Notch does not get me excited and is not something that I would be pumped to, be, to have to go through, to be honest with you. Uh, I prefer very calm, simple hikes through the woods listening to birds chirping. (laughs) But this is a bit more treacherous. And at some point in your formation, in our formation, towards wholeness and maturity, if you follow Jesus long enough, you will be faced with a similar experience. Where what feels like out of nowhere, you are brought 
to a halt. And what stands before you is what seems to be a wall at first glance. When you first come up to the Mahusik Notch, it seems as though it's just a pile of rocks. It's a wall and you are caught by it. But you realize that this wall at first glance is more like an obscure, mysterious, and even ominous tunnel. And there is only one way through. Your simple approach to the hike is altered. What used to work won't as you move forward. And this moment forces our hand as followers of Jesus into one of three options. We either stay where we are and stagnate. Or we get lost trying to find our own way around. Or finally, we decide to turn around and call it a day altogether. Those are three temptations when we hit this moment, this halt in our journey with Jesus. But there's still only one way through. And when I learned about the Mahusik Notch, I came to realize that this metaphor and image is the perfect and ideal metaphor and image to describe what leads into the fourth stage of our journey in discipleship with Jesus of Nazareth. We've looked at the first three, moments with God, managing behavior, mission with Jesus, and now we find ourselves moving towards the fourth stage. And as I have articulated, it seems to me, in my own just generalizations and opinions, that majority of professing believers, professing Christians, don't make it past stage three. Majority of believers come to this halt and succumb to one of the three temptations already mentioned. You stay, you try to find your way around, or you quit altogether. And this moment that we come to, this halt out of nowhere, it might seem, is referred to as the wall or what St. John of the Cross in the 16th century called the dark night of the soul. Now, this phrase is used broadly, especially in the realm of psychiatry and psychology, specifically in the work of Carl Jung. Meaning, many people can and do go through something similar to the dark night of the soul, but it has its roots in the Christian tradition. The dark night of the soul, though it's used in in, in a lot of different spaces, it's used in Buddhist mysticism, it's used in psychology, it's used in psychiatry, it's used across the spectrum, but it has its roots in the Christian tradition. Okay? And there are many things that can happen in our life that catalyze the dark night of the soul some sort of crisis of faith, some sort of um, loss in one's family, some sort of uh, dramatic exhaustion and burnout, 
um, disillusionment, disenchantment. There's all different types, some sort of sin that grips your life, some sort of stronghold or addiction can often catalyze the dark night of the soul. And for much of our discipleship to Jesus, up until this point, it is primarily about maintaining our external behavior. It's primarily about being a quote-unquote good person and doing the right things, experiencing God's presence even, encountering God in dramatic ways, partnering with him on his mission, serving, making disciples, giving of oneself, contributing, living in community, living in the life of the church, doing life together, practicing the spiritual disciplines. And the spiritual disciplines like prayer, fasting, reading the scripture, uh, contribution, silence and solitude, they all seem to work. They do their job. Though daily annoyances, struggles, and challenges do exist in our journey, there is usually a quick recovery. Yeah, it took a little bit extra time at the McDonald's drive-thru. It's okay. You'll be fine. Yeah, you had a tough day at work. It's fine. Yeah, you might feel a little bit dry for a couple of weeks or so, but there's recovery. This moment is different. The wall and the dark night of the soul is different. Something seems different for you when you come to this moment. It doesn't feel just like you had a bad day. It's now as though Jesus is at the end of an interstate or end of a road, and he's inviting you into the wilderness where you see no road. You see no vegetation. And he says, come. Follow me. I find it interesting that Jesus multiple times looks at the disciples and says, come follow me. Not just once. The invitation to follow Jesus occurs multiple times because there's going to be multiple times in the journey where you're going to question if you should follow or not. And it's at this point where at the end of the road, so to speak, Jesus says, come into the wilderness with me. It seems different. In this moment, in this stage, when you come to church, when you gather with the people of God and everyone is engaged in passionate worship, raising hands, shedding tears, expressing joy verbally, testifying to God's goodness, you show up and you're numb. And you are cold. You are uninspired. You are calloused and even irritated at other people's praise. Other people's joy actually frustrates you. Everyone is worshiping, praising, singing songs on their face, and you show up and you're like, honestly, if it wasn't for habit, I wouldn't be here right now. You're numb, you're cold, and you're even irritated in some fashion. Other people's fervor in this season, at this moment, actually begins to annoy you. Does that resonate with anyone? Someone's zeal is actually deeply irritating. 
but you aren't sure why. I'm not just talking about the introverts in the room, okay? Who are contemplative and monastic and like to be in silence and quiet. I'm talking about this is different for you. This is not normal. Normally, you're engaged in in however you express praise and worship. You're engaged, but something's different in this moment and in this stage. This is not normal, and you know it. You know something's not normal. You know something's off, but you can't articulate it. You're not sure what's actually happening. It is at this point where the thought of prayer, scripture reading, and being with Jesus is solely habitual, a chore, boring, dry, dull, bland, and actually lifeless. Not only that, but you aren't even sure where he went. If you were honest with yourself, you might even think that the Holy Spirit just left your inner being. You were just on the phone with him, but now it seems that he's on mute. And you're saying, hello? Hello? You ever been on a call with someone and out of nowhere, their phone goes on mute? You're like, what? Just, you didn't hang up, but you hear nothing. It's dead silent. Hello? 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 This is a descriptor of this experience. And as I mentioned earlier, this isn't just a a Christian experience, though that's what we're talking about. It's an experience every human will go through. For the non-believer, it could be an existential crisis. You're asking the question, there's got to be more to life than this. I've done all of the things, but there is this deep cavernous void inside of my life, and I don't know what it is. Darkness has settled in. And you're asking questions like, what is my purpose? Who am I? And in a world that says that you should create your identity, you've experienced exhaustion, immense pressure, and utter confusion, as well as decision fatigue. But for a person who's a believer in this season, the ideas of the scriptures and the, the, the prayers of the ancient fathers and mothers practicing the way is dry, boring, dull, bland, and utterly lifeless. You may be on the phone with God, but like I said, he seems to be on mute. Or a more relevant metaphor is it's like power in your home just went off. Your entire life, it seems, is now living at night. Why is it that when the power goes off, you seem to stay up later? I, I don't know about you. That's what, for, for me, I feel like when the power goes off, it's like, oh, man, I don't know what, I can't go to sleep. F. Scott Fitzgerald says the dark night of the soul is like living at 3 a.m. all of the time. How many of you don't sleep well at night? You're just restless constantly. Anybody? Some of you are just like, I am knocked out at 8 p.m. And I'm not getting up until 8 a.m. But some of you know what I'm talking about. You're restless through the night. Transfer that into living. That is what this moment 
is like. All of a sudden, power went out. You're still living. You're still existing. You still have your value system, your belief system. But the power has gone out, out of nowhere. Disciplines that used to work to spark your intimacy with God don't any longer. They don't work. In fact, you might even question if you have faith anymore. Or if God is even real. Now, rationally in this season, you may believe that he does. You've come to a place where logically and rationally God exists. But in your heart of hearts, you aren't sure any longer. You can rationalize the existence of God, but your heart is not experiencing that reality. Or just as in Psalm 77, the very thought of God actually produces melancholy, lament, groaning, questions, and even complaining. God simply isn't exciting any longer. The honeymoon phase is done. You have experienced an eclipse of God. But he is at work. He is actually active. And he's doing something new that's never happened in your life before. There is a hidden grace in this season. We all love grace that's seen, but we don't often love grace that's not seen. And this season is a hidden grace, a mysterious grace. And this could be other than the very first encounter that we have with God, the most vital stage of our formation. Hear that. This stage could be the most vital stage in your formation into Christ-likeness. Because if we're honest, you got yourself in some way up to this point, or you could have on your own. You could do the formula, plug and play. We're here serving, managing behavior. I'm actually encountering God. You can work your way to this point. Now, that's not everyone. I realize that. There there is some, some deep formation happening. But if we're honest, externally, you can get to this point. But this is the most vital. So... What is happening in the dark night of the soul? What is happening in this season? What is happening at the wall? Also, by the way, if you're a guest, you picked a great Sunday to come to church. (laughs) Some of you are like, these people are honestly weird. And I'm probably not coming back ever again. (laughs) Well, we can talk about it. Anyway, (laughs) so what's happening? And I joke but I believe there are people in this room, this is your first time and you deeply resonate with what I'm talking about. Deeply resonate with it. So what's happening? Here's what's happening in the dark night. The dark night is when God takes away his felt presence in order to do a deep work in us. Now keep in mind, I said felt presence. God will never take away his presence. He is omnipresent. To take away his presence is to take away himself. He's omnipresent. 
But he will take away his felt, tangible presence or his glory, so to speak, in order to do a deep work in us, liberating us from our idols, disordered loves, in the language of St. Augustine, and our unhealthy attachments in order for us to be freed to love God and to be loved by God more fully. It is actually in the dark night of the soul that you are being freed. And you're not just being freed from, you're being freed for. But he has removed his felt presence in order to do a deep work. God is teaching you and I in this moment to trust that he is good to us, even when you can't see or feel his goodness. John of the Cross says, God leads into the dark night those whom he desires to purify from all these imperfections so that he may bring them farther onward. Because here is the crux of it all. Our principal desire is to feel God rather than worship him. Your principal desire is to feel God's presence rather than worship him. And, and there's actually, I'm gonna get, we're going to get into this next week. There is no greater antidote to reorder your loves than worship. Worship is the antidote to reordering your loves. I just want us to be aware of that. But our principal desire is to feel God rather than worship him. We want to stay in the honeymoon phase constantly. And he will purify us from the worship of our feelings toward him in order that we may truly love him and be loved by him. He reveals to us in this moment, that what we have loved all along is primarily our experience of him, our ideas about him, or concepts regarding him. Now, in the scriptures, this stage can be seen the many times we see writers languishing over waiting for God. Just go read all of the Psalms. Or when God is presented as one who is in hiding. Or in deep darkness. If you go read Exodus 21, you actually see Moses going after God in deep darkness. But the most clear picture of this stage and of the dark night of the soul and of the wall, so to speak, is one of pruning. Specifically in John 15 in the upper room discourse, the final moments that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes to the cross, he begins talking about this image of a vine. And he begins talking about the idea of pruning. Now, have you ever seen a tree or a rose bush that has just been pruned? And you're thinking to yourself, it might be, it looks dead. Like it might be dead. We're not sure, but it looks like, there is, there's no fruit. It looks dead and bare. Anybody? Like, that is me. When I, see, when I see trees that are pruned, I'm like, it looks dead, in my opinion. But, as we all know, it is good for the tree to be pruned. 
in order for it to bear greater fruit. In fact, trees cannot bear more fruit if they aren't pruned. Pruning does a couple things, but primarily it removes dead and diseased stems and branches. Because if it isn't pruned, disease will spread to the rest of the tree and the tree will die. That's what happens when you prune a tree or prune a rose bush or any other type of bush or tree. And here's the thing. When God prunes us, it hurts. But he never harms us. There's a difference. Pruning hurts, but will never harm. In fact, it is most beneficial for us. Now, it is at this point where we realize not only are we holding on to certain aspects of our life, but we actually have developed unhealthy attachments. And what we thought was holding on actually looks more like claws that can't let go. And do you know why cats' claws often won't retract? Disease and infection. And there are things in our life, even good things, that we're not just holding on to lightly. We have our claws in them. And our claws won't retract. And there's a chance that there might be some disease or infection with that attachment. Not only that, but we come to realize that the greatest threat in this season to our formation is no longer other people. For a long time in our journey with Jesus, our biggest threat is other people. Maybe friends that don't know Jesus that you feel constantly tempted by. And you're like, I'm trying to love them well, but they always wiling. Like, my friends are trifling. Do, do you guys know what trifling means? That's okay. We can talk about that later. Don't Google it, all right? So maybe for a season, you're like, I got to figure this whole thing out. Like, I need to love well, but also, like, I, every time I'm with them, I just get sucked right on in, like a vacuum. It's just crazy. Or... For some of us in the journey, the the biggest stumbling block is uh, hypocritical Christians. Which I find it fascinating because if we look in the mirror, like we're pretty hypocritical ourselves. But that's oftentimes a thought. Like it's hypocritical believers actually that's holding me back. Or we come to realize it's no longer others, fake Christians. It's also not an unhealthy church. And for some of us, maybe that's been the primary threat. It's not the domineering or narcissistic pastor or leader or even the devil himself. At this point, you come to realize that the greatest threat to your formation is actually yourself. The one that looks at you when you look in the mirror. You come to the realization that you and I, we have been enslaved to ourselves and we didn't even know it. Seeking to maintain a false sense of control that is really just living a life cluttered with distractions. 
in order for us not to be faced with that very reality. Most of us are living a life just trying to distract ourselves from ourselves. The French philosopher in the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Put yourself in a room with no cell phone and sit there for an hour and see what starts coming to the surface. You will drive yourself mad. I heard a story a few weeks ago of a a pastor who had gone to do a three-week silent retreat. Hello. And I'm extroverted. Like, I got to talk. I'll talk to myself if I have to. And on this retreat, he was told, you can't bring any sort of electronics, obviously. You can't bring any books. And it's actually recommended not to bring the Bible. You can only have one cup of coffee a day. And you can meet with a psychologist or a counselor during the day, if you would like, for about an hour. And he said it was the most challenging 21 days of his entire life. Gut-wrenching in some regard, pruning, purifying, and ultimately liberating at the same time. But we are faced with the reality that the greatest threat to ourselves is actually ourselves. Why? Because death has been conquered. Death has been conquered. But now we recognize we've been enslaved to ourselves. And without this process, we aren't able to be set free not. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But it hurts because freedom from ourselves results in loss of control. Freedom requires some sort of loss. And Christ has come to set you and I totally and utterly and completely free. And if you go through this process as your claws are locked into the various idols and attachments in our life, deep within the surface often, God begins to peel your fingers back one by one. So that we might have all of him. And I'm pretty sure our creator knows what he's doing. In order to mature, friends, going back is not an option. In order for us to become complete and whole, going backward is not an option. I just want us all to be aware of that. What once lit the fire, though, will no longer light the fire. What used to work, the disciplines and practices that you used to do when you got dry and you started getting kind of funky, they're not going to work any longer. It's like a, a, a flick a you know, the little flick a that they, they run out all of a sudden? I think in our minds, we think they should always light up. Like, there should always be fire coming out of a flick a right? And then there's that one moment where you flip and nothing. Nothing. And we're, we're, we're surprised. It's like, well, you've had that same flick a for the last five years, and you've been using it. No wonder it doesn't work. That's what's happening in this moment. And here's the deal. You cannot simulate past experiences with God. 
You can't simulate those encounters in the past. Try to recreate them. You can't do it. Going to a bunch of worship nights isn't going to fix it. Just listening to Hillsong and Bethel and Jesus Culture and Maverick City and listen, it's not going to work. You got to go through. You have to go through if you're going to be one that experiences maturity. Gerald May, who's a psychiatrist that wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, where he synthesizes John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila's work, says this. We may yearn to, quote unquote, let go and let God, but it usually doesn't happen until we have exhausted our own efforts. One thing is certain. The process of freedom is one of subtraction. We are left more empty than when we began. Some of you thought you came into your journey with Jesus empty. But actually, the journey with Jesus is one of emptying. So what are we emptying? John of the Cross lists seven deadly spiritual imperfections that must be purified or pruned. And here they are. The first is pride. Seems pretty cliche, you might say. But let's be honest, we're pretty prideful people as humans. It's the center of our disorder and our brokenness. The second is greed. The third is luxury. And luxury just simply means that you love the blessings of God more than God himself. The fourth is impatience. The fifth is what he refers to as spiritual gluttony, which basically means you come to love the knowledge about God or knowledge of God more so than God himself. The sixth is comparison. And the seventh is sloth. And sloth just simply means that when God asks you to do something, you are terrified and you run in the opposite direction. You don't act. Now there's We could go deep in the weeds in all of these, but these are seven that he specifically hones in on. Pride, greed, luxury, impatience, spiritual gluttony, comparison, and sloth. And there are degrees, I think, in some regard, in each of our lives at how these are impacting us. And you have to ask yourself, which one of these seven, or the handful, really, do you really have your hands just deep into? And recognize this, too. When usual satisfaction that comes from God dries up, when the focus has primarily been about gratifying experiences for yourself rather than a commitment to love, we begin to seek out ways to simulate the transcendent through vices and other mechanisms. And the temptation when you're hungry is to eat anything. The temptation when you are hungry is to eat anything. And we start simulating through different coping mechanisms the transcendent. It could be as simple as um, emotional purchases and consumption, material purchases. It could be fornication. It could be drugs and alcohol. It could be 
simply laziness. It could be we are just losing ourselves constantly in Netflix. There are multiple things. There are different vices. It could be actually we begin to consume community. That we literally have to be around people 24-7. We cannot be by ourselves. Because if we are, we come face to face with ourselves. And we do not want that. So the question that one asks is the same as the psalmist. Why is your face hidden from me? Or better yet, how long, O Lord? Do you know that you see how long in the Psalms multiple times? How long? How long? How long is this going to continue to happen? How long do I have to experience this, O Lord? But here's the deal. Here's where it gets the darkest, I think, for many of us. Is that the experience of the wall or the dark night of the soul isn't a day. It isn't a week. This experience could be months or even years. Years. If you begin to read the story of characters in the scriptures, you begin to see that their experience of the dark night of the soul sometimes lasted decades. Some scholars believe that Moses was 80 years old when he encountered the burning bush. I'm surprised the man didn't have a heart attack and pass right there. Just done. 80 years. The time between God telling Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a kid, to them actually having a kid. Years. Walls that people come to. You could even argue that the the angel of the Lord coming to Mary and saying, you're going to basically have God in you. He's going to be the Savior of the world. Nine months, if not longer. Dark night of the soul. How long, O Lord? For Teresa of Avila, where a lot of this comes from with John of the Cross. John of the Cross was someone taught by Teresa of Avila. For her, she says it was 20 years. 20 years. And as I articulated last week, we come to the painful realization that discipleship with Jesus is hard. And to follow Jesus is to follow his path. And this path requires a dark night. Requires. And for Jesus, that was quite literal. A literal dark night. It took place in Gethsemane. Do you know what Gethsemane means? Oil press. It's at the Mount of Olives. It's often referred to as agony in the garden. It was a place where olives were pressed to extract oil. And it's in this moment where Jesus was pressed and extracted pain, sorrow, grief, and even blood. Most people want to talk about the cross, and and the cross is the center of history. But Jesus had to go through Gethsemane emotionally to get to the cross. Mentally and emotionally, he had to go through Gethsemane. It was quite literally a dark night. But I want us to all be aware of this as we begin to wrap up our time this morning. You and I cannot get well without pain. 
any of you have been through any sort of surgery, you can't get well without pain. Now, in 2022, in the pursuit of Project Self, we seek to better ourselves absent of any pain. And this bleeds into the church. It bleeds into discipleship with Jesus. We assume that most of our formation is seeking to be like Jesus while avoiding pain at all costs. That because he went to the cross, we don't have to. That's not how the text reads. You actually have to go through the cross. You have to go into Gethsemane. And our temptation for all of us in this point and at this point in this season is to ask the question, God, will you take me out? God, get me out of here. Get and I'm t- I mean, you might have such an honest conversation that you use words with God you've never used before. And I just want all of us to know he can handle it. He can handle your honesty. He can. Don't walk in all, God, will you please get me out of here? Go with, he's like, you're lying. You're, 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 why are you doing this? Bring it all. Because when you bring it all, it's you emptying. It's emptying. Our temptation is to ask, God, will you get me out of here? Rather than, God, will you get me through? God, please get me through. And that is the prayer we have to pray. In the dark night of the soul, God, get me through. The journey at this stage begins to feel so long. And for some of you today following Jesus, you're like, this has felt like an eternity. Especially in a world hyper-focused on instant gratification and quick fixes. It feels so long. Now, there is a way through. Because remember, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. You know how many references we have to the Saturday after Jesus' crucifixion? Hardly any. It was silent, it was painful. But it was what A.J. Swoboda calls a glorious dark. Here's what Rich Velotis has to say. He says, if you are experiencing darkness, you are a prime candidate for resurrection. Because God works in the dark. God works in your darkness. God is active in your darkness. Matter of fact, resurrection comes at that sliver of time between darkness and dawn. I was driving 840 yesterday after a massive storm had come through, Ian had come through here, and it was just ominous all around, clouds, dark and gray. And I looked to the horizon westward, and there was a thin line of sunshine on the horizon. And I thought to myself, what an image of resurrection. We will explore next week what it looks like to move forward, and more specifically, move inward. 
as individuals in order that we might model the life of Christ and walk into maturity and wholeness. Because within all of us is an inborn yearning for completion and wholeness. Within every single one of you and I, there is an inborn yearning for completion and wholeness to find home. Your soul was made for that, friends. And there is nothing in this created temporal world that can satisfy. Nothing. I just want you to think of all the dollars spent on mental health. Mental and emotional health. In our nation, over $200 billion is spent on mental and emotional health. $287 on average per month, per person, according to a survey done by Self Financial. People want to get whole. People want to get well. But you can't avoid going through the dark night of the soul. You have to go through. St. Augustine has famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And it is in this season that we are being shaken in order to experience clarity, just like a Polaroid picture. The more you shake, the more clarity that comes. He is pruning, he is refining, and he's ultimately liberating us for him and for ourselves. And this stage does produce a cramping hunger for wholeness. So much so that it might feel like a loss of appetite. I don't know about you, but there are times where I am so hungry that I'm nauseous. And I don't even want to eat. But in order to be filled, all of us, we must be emptied completely. Emptied and released of the grip of control. I'm going to get the band to come on up. And we're going to close.